When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. It's Friday, September 3rd, 2021. Today, I'm joined by Jim Bianco of Bianco Research, one of our favorite guests here at Real Vision. Here's what we're looking at today. Uh, Looks like... uh, I don't know. Did we get to an all-time high on the S&P 500? Numbers still bouncing around a little bit. Markets, uh, U.S. equity markets are looking essentially flat uh, across the board. I don't see anything moving more than a quarter of a point. Looks like the uh, final print on the S&P still yet to come, bouncing a little bit, but 4,000 535 is what I'm seeing right now. Dow Jones Industrial Average looks like 35,374. Also in today's news, a dismal print on non-farm payrolls, actual 235,000 on a consensus estimate of 740,000. We'll be talking about that more with Jim, getting into some of the internal dynamics there. Also, Crypto is ripping, especially L1 protocols. Uh, these are the Solanas of the world, the Ethereums of the world. We'll talk about that with Jim. Talking of which, Jim Bianco, welcome back to the show. Hey, Ash, thanks for having me. Jim, no shortage of stuff to talk about today. Yeah, exactly. It's Even though it's a, a Friday before the end of the uh, three-day weekend, it's still been very interesting. This whole week has been not just payroll Friday. Yeah. So, Jim, tell us, I know you have some thoughts on non-farm payrolls. I just wanted to run through a couple of the numbers here because they really are ugly. Uh, so, as I said, 235,000 actual uh, new jobs added on a consensus estimate of 740K. Prior month, 943,000 revised up to 1 million. So, today's number, it's less than a quarter of what we added prior month. Yeah, so from um, for all you statistical geeks out there, this is the third biggest miss ever. We were 490,000 below the consensus. The record miss at 700,000 was April of this year, and then we had a a one last year as well, too. Uh, The lowest guess in the street was 400,000. 235 is where we came, so we were below the lowest guess um, on the street. So any way you cut this, it's a surprise. What's behind it? Let's go back to July. And remember that the payroll report is a survey of about 60,000 jobs. The survey is taken the week of the 12th. So the week of July 12th, we had about 15,000 COVID cases a day. We reported now revised 1 million jobs. The week of August 13th, we had about 140,000 COVID cases a day, up from 15,000. We went from a million jobs to 235,000 jobs. None of those jobs, zero growth in leisure and hospitality, restaurant workers. So it's pretty clear COVID has had a big negative impact on the number of jobs that we had. The BLS also has another statistic that doesn't get much play, but is now, and that is the number of people that are out of work because they're sick. That jumped to a multi-month high of about three and a half million people or so that were out on average the week of the 12th. Much bigger jump than July. I forgot what the number was off the top of my head, but again, it all comes back to the Delta variant did matter in August. 
Yeah, I mean, I hear some uh, not just negative commentary and analysis on the internal dynamics, but also some negative, uh, perhaps foreshadowing looking forward. Let me ask you this, Jim, looking at today's uh, U.S. equity markets, basically flat, uh, looks like across the board. Um, I'm curious, is this one of those scenarios where uh, bad news is good news, is bad news no news? How are we gaming the sort of uh, game theory here on what this means uh, for the Fed, perhaps, perhaps needing to delay the taper because of some of the numbers that we see coming down the pike? See, I, I'm in the camp now that I think that it's the bad news is good news scenario, that this weak number maybe pushed the Fed off of the fence in terms of what they're going to do in September and not taper in, in September. They still have a November meeting and they still have a December meeting that they could still do it to and fit their criteria from the Jackson Hole speech by the end of the year. So September is not, you know, um, make or break for, for the Fed right now. Additionally, there's another thing coming up as well, too. Uh, New Orleans has no power because of Hurricane Ida. The, the governor said it may take weeks before power comes back and then people can return. That's a metropolitan area of half a million people or so. If they continue to have no power through the week of the 12th, as the, the payroll report goes, if you have a business and they, and they surveyed you last month and you had so many workers and they call you this month or reach out to you this month online and you're not in business or you're, you're closed because you got no power, they put you down for zero jobs. They'll catch up with you in, uh, in, uh, in the October survey and get it back to normal. So you could also have another bad report for September out the first week of October. This is uh, the uh, September report won't be necessarily be an economic slowdown, but more of a, of a uh, weather event. But two back-to-back -back disappointing reports could really impact Fed policy in terms of what they're going to do in terms of the taper. Who knew Fed policy was going to be down to power workers in Louisiana getting the uh, power restored to New Orleans as well? So the market might be looking at all of this and saying taper's going to be tapers off for several more months. Bad news means more stimulus, means more good news. Uh, for us, means the Fed continues at $120 billion. The pressure is on Congress to continue to stimulate, keep buying stocks. So what normally should have been a bad economic event is now spun into something positive because the market's like a heroin junkie, and it's going to get more heroin in the form of stimulus money, either from the Fed or the fiscal authorities. That's what it likes. Yeah. Talking about the junkie uh, markets here, I'm looking at S&P uh, 500. Looks like unched on the day. Um, by the way, we should point out for a little bit of context for people who don't follow these markets as closely as you do, uh, year to date, 20% positive, one year change, 31% uh, up on the S&P. Yeah. And I think this is the 50, yesterday was the 52nd or 53rd new all-time high for the year. It has been a powerful market that just goes without much in the way of a correction. We've gone now 211 days without a 5% correction, not a record, but it's one of the longer ones that we've seen in the last 40 years. The record actually was in 404 days in 2018. But what you see in this market, if you know about the junkie market and all of this stuff, what I think drives this is flows. 
Every day, every hour, every minute, people are committing money to the market. They're committing money to index funds. And the largest index fund is one tied to the S&P 500. Maybe it's the Spider ETF or the Vanguard um, S&P 500 fund or some version of an S&P fund. So if you look at a chart of the S&P, it just goes up, you know, uh, from the lower left to the upper right, as Dennis Gartman used to famously say about charts. But if you look at a chart of the uh, Russell 2000, which does not have as much index sponsorship as the S&P, it does waver around a little bit more. Uh, so it really is those 500 stocks every moment of the day, somebody's throwing money into an index fund and they just keep going. So if we're talking about putting off the taper, maybe pushing more stimulus, that's just more money to throw into the market. I'll remind everybody in April, remember we had the American Cares Act and then in April, we got the $1,400 check. The first and second week of April were all-time inflow records to the stock market. When people get stimulus money, they put it in savings. What is savings? The S&P ETF is what savings are. So tremendous sums of money flowed into the, into the stock market from all that stimulus money that came in early April. So if we're talking about a slowdown, that means more stimulus either from the Fed, more stimulus from the government, just think more money going into the S&P index funds. And that seems to be a good explanation of 2021 and how the markets have worked. Yeah, very well said, Jim, and very uh, sort of well condensed what we've been seeing here. By the way, just a fun little fact, I'm looking at U.S. equity indices uh, across a variety of time horizons. Big winner on the one-year percent change basis, uh, Russell 2000 up 48.4%. Yeah, now the Russell had a great run last fall into the spring. Uh, part of what happened with the Russell is, you know, we tend to think of that, oh, it's the, it's, for those that are not familiar, the Russell 2000 is the, the uh, 1001 largest market cap stock to the 3000th largest market cap stock. The Russell 1000 would be the top 1000 stocks. So it's considered the small cap index. But again, welcome to 2021. What's a small cap index? What's in that index? Plug Power, NEO, AMC, GameStop, all the fun meme stocks, all of the really racy mid small kind of companies are in that index. And they went, you know, ARC, ARC fund type of companies are in that index. They went huge last fall, last spring. Now they stalled like ARC has for the last few months, but their gains from six months ago, nine months ago is still keeping them on top of the leaderboard. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. 
You know, we've been talking about this idea of uh, bad news being good news. We've talked about the good news in terms of uh, U.S. equities. Let's talk about some of the bad news. Let's get back to the real world here for a second and take a look at jobs. Uh, Nick, if you can bring up this chart, uh, this one comes to us from the New York Times. Uh, and what's interesting to me about this chart is obviously it's data that's very well known. Uh, this is just from Bureau of Labor Statistics. But the visualization is especially compelling, I think, for two reasons. Uh, first, when you look at this chart, you obviously see the minus 20 million jobs uh, that we saw uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, this just absolute freefall uh, down uh, below the 152 million uh, mark, which is where we were getting started. Uh, what's interesting to me and what's frankly tragic about this uh, is the fact that we are still below 5 million jobs lower than where we were when the pandemic started. Number two, the other thing about this chart that I think is compelling uh, is the fact that the rate of recovery is clearly declining. In other words, every time you see that chart go up and to the right uh, from where it is a little bit higher, a little bit higher, a little bit higher, it's going less high every time. So the increments at which the recovery is taking place are slowing down. And we still got 5 million people out of work in this country relative to where we were at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, the Fed changed their model, uh, or not their model, but they, they, they kind of revised their mandate to being an emphasis on employment about a year ago. And this is one of the reasons why they keep talking about transitory inflation and about stimulus, stimulus, stimulus. They're looking at a version of this chart, and they're saying, like you pointed out, 5 million people are still unemployed relative to where we were pre-pandemic. Right. We can't, we can't stick around at 250,000 jobs, uh, you know, 250,000 jobs a month or thereabouts in job growth, although pre-pandemic, that would have been a good number. Right. That will take years to get those people back to work. So they've been pushing as hard as they can to get the economy to explode so we can get everybody back to work. Uh, and so we've got a ways to go on that respect. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is this gets to this whole idea about the nature of work. And I know I talked about this on this channel before, and I'll mention it again. I still think that there's been a secular change because of the pandemic and the way that people view work. They're not as interested in rushing back to a, a centralized office in a big city as they used to. And they're also starting to think that they've got the upper hand because they view work differently. So we're starting to see more wage inflation because the only way to get these people back to work is we're going to have to start to pay them to go back to work, pay them more money. Otherwise, they're really looking for remote work jobs or they're looking for lifestyle balances in their work. And this, I put it as kind of, you know, analogous to what we saw after the Great Depression. That whole generation, what we call the silent generation, would not borrow money, would not take out a mortgage, would spend money frugally, no matter how much money they had in the bank. They were yeah. so scarred by the Great Depression. Well, this generation might be looking at the old office circa 2019 and basically saying that was a soulless, terrible place. I don't want to go back there. I don't want, I want to work. Just don't want to work under those conditions. And so it's incumbent upon managers to understand, I believe the game has changed and they have to start reimagining what the office is 
instead of offering, you know, free lunch or whatever they can to get everybody back to work like Goldman Sachs is doing, because I think they're trying to get back to 2019 and they're not going to go back to 2019. They have to start thinking about what 2022, 2023's office is going to look like as we move forward. In the meantime, people are unemployed. They're going to stay unemployed. And this whole dynamic that the Fed is pushing so hard to get everybody back to work. But on the other hand, you've got a secular rethink, in my opinion, about what work means is meeting. And it's going to be a long time, I think, before those 5 million jobs are done or are, are, are fully brought back into the workforce. And you're right, the slowing of the job growth is also not going to help that either. Boy, Jim, that's so insightful. So many important points there. I think that we are seeing a major shift in the way that work gets done, whether it's the Great Depression or World War II. This is one of those events where there's a before and there's an after. Uh, and for people uh, who are coming to the market now, maybe who didn't know about the before, we have to realize there's some people who've been getting out of college and coming back into the workforce who never knew that there was a, a status quo uh, antebellum, so to speak, in terms of this uh, in terms of this challenge that we've been going through. I also think it's interesting when you talk about the you know the people who are who are still outside of the labor market. Un unfortunately, Jim, I think what we're seeing here is really again. I know we hate to use this word because it's uh, one of our drinking games words, but it's a bifurcation of these labor markets where people who have the ability to work from home, people who have the ability to demand certain conditions, people who have the ability uh, to do work in a certain way who are very fortunate. And there are a lot of people who are just still locked out of the labor market who are just looking for a job. Uh, and that's something that uh, the economy is still struggling with very much, I think. Yeah, you're right. What we're talking about when I talk about work from home, remote work, by the estimates I've seen, we're talking about 30% of the workforce, not 100. Right. Uh, and who are those people? They're people that their job is basically sit in front of a computer and manipulate things on a screen. Ash, that's you and me right now. That's exactly what we're doing right now. Uh, so we're part of that 30%. You know, if you're a doctor, if you're a surgeon, if you're a waitress, if you're a cop, the, you, you can't do your job via Zoom. Um, so there's going to be a certain number of people that have to go back into the office. But even those people are starting to think that they've got the upper hand that they could go back when they want and they can go back on their terms. And that's why you've seen wage growth, you know, average hourly earnings is still above 5% right now over the last year or so. And it's near 7% over the last three months. So you've done, and if you go to the hospitality and leisure and hospitality sector, wage growth over the last year is up around 17%. So how do you get people, how do you get waitresses back and busboys back? You got to pay them. You got to pay them to get back. Yeah. They're not coming back at 2019 wages. They're coming back at something a lot more. So for economists that say, well, we've got transitory inflation because we don't have wage inflation, it looks like it's coming. It looks like wage inflation is coming. And it's largely, I know they'll say, but there's a glut of workers, but there's been a change of attitude. And that, that, that the pandemic has definitely changed attitudes about how we view work right now. Yeah, you know, we're trying to disaggregate so many complex forces here to understand what's going on beneath the surface. Uh, there have been durable changes in attitudes. Uh, there's also, uh, it seems, a shift up uh, in terms of inflationary pressure. Then you have to add back some of the structural pressures. Uh, I'm a Manhattan bachelor. I go out to eat a lot. Many of my favorite restaurants are closing earlier than they used to. And when I ask them uh, why, they all have the same answer. We can't get enough people in the kitchen. We can't get enough people on the floor. Uh, and so some of this is just 
the, the frictional aspect of if you were working at a restaurant here uh, in New York City, why on earth would you stay in New York if you didn't have to? Uh, highest uh, cost of living uh, in the country right now uh, and no job. So people leave. It's hard to bring them back, even when you want to pay them more money. So all of these sort of very complex factors here, we're thinking about and rebalancing it, as you say, reimagining what the nature of work is going to look like. Talking of reimagining, Jim, one of my favorite topics and your favorite topics, the world of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin up now over 50,000. We have a lot of coins that are ripping. Ethereum a shade below 4,000 right now, but crossed over 4,000 earlier. Uh, Solana is up almost uh, 70% over the last seven days. Uh, all of these L1s, uh, Cardano up, all of these coins that are based on smart contracts. I know you look at this space very closely. Jim, when you see this, what are you thinking? Yeah, the, the space, the attitude or the, the look in the space is definitely starting to change. There, the focus has now been, as you said, on coins and blockchains that have smart contracts that you can develop out things um, like various protocols, whether they're trading protocols or lending or borrowing protocols or insurance protocols um, up and down the line, even if you want to have side chains or if you want to have level, layer, layer two scaling solutions. Those are the coins where everybody's moving. And then within that bifurcation is the proof of stake coins like the ADAs or Cardano and Solana's are really ripping higher. You know, Ethereum is still nominally a proof of work one. It will probably roll over um, to its ETH 2.0, what, early next year, mid part of next year, uh, at the latest, hopefully, that it will go. But Bitcoin, it does, it, it can do some of that, but there hasn't been a large adoption of it in that space. And it is being left behind as the space moves out. Additionally, you've got an absolute mania. There's no other word to put it in the NFT, the non-fungible token space. The number, the the uh, the explosion of prices on some of this digital art is a sight to behold. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of big sectors of that space, um, like the crypto punks. They're up about a hundred x since the spring. Hundred x. Since the spring, the Bored Ape uh, digital art is up maybe 10x in the last five weeks, 10x in five weeks uh, or so. People are people in that space are wondering, uh, you know, a down day if they only double their money in two days. I mean, it seems to be what's been going on um, in that space. Well, you need ETH. You need some of these um, um, coins in order to buy this. You don't buy it with dollars. You don't buy it with Bitcoin. And as long as you need ETH to traffic in this stuff, well, then right. you need to put it in some kind of a lending solution or a DEX to trade it. So it's just it's just creating more interest and creating more activity on these on these chains. And you're starting to see these chains really take off with the whole NFT boom. Look, this NFT boom might be bigger than the tulip boom, boom bubble of the 16th century at the rate it's going right now. Uh, you know, I don't know where it ends, but it, it's rare to find anything you can buy and say, well, yeah, it's only up 100x in five months. And, and that's exactly what's been happening with some of these uh, digital art pieces. Yeah, there's a story in Barron's, I think, yesterday about uh, two lots on Board Ape Yacht Club going onto the auction block at Sotheby's, expected to fret, fetch upward of 10 million dollars. So just to give a sense of this, uh, by the way, you're absolutely spot on when you talk about the demand uh, for ETH 
on this for Ethereum. This is such a key point. These coin, these uh, NFTs are purchased uh, not in dollars, as you said, uh, but in ETH. So obviously, there's a tremendous amount of demand there. We should also point out some of the other L2s that we're talking about, the Cardanos of the world, uh, the polka dots of the world that have been ripping, uh, are also potential coins that can be used in similar ways for smart contracts, not the base right now of the NFT space. That is still very much uh, Ethereum. And by the way, I mentioned Solana. If you're interested in Solana, this is a very high transaction volume coin. Uh, it's got some really novel multiplexing features and some other really nerdy things for people who are into the space. Uh, we actually did an interview uh, with Anatoly Yakovenko, who is the co-founder uh, and CEO of Solana. So if you're interested in this world, check it out on Real Vision. I think it was published uh, very recently. Eric Kriske, a friend of Real Vision, did uh, that interview for us. You know, Jim, we're always talking about crypto. And by the way, if people are interested in this, they should absolutely sign up uh, for Real Vision Crypto, which is free. Uh, and they can see you on that network quite frequently as you and I and others have these conversations there in a lot more detail than we can, frankly, on Real Vision Daily Briefing, because we've got a lot of topics to cover here. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about uh, off camera before we started here uh, was the model of your friend Yuri and Timmer uh, on Bitcoin, give us a little bit of a sense of what that model is uh, from a stock-to-flow perspective, from a supply-demand perspective. Yeah, his model is basically taken off of some of the ideas that Raul has talked about in terms of the Metcalf's law and network adoption, and that he's been looking at the number of wallet growth, non-zero balance wallets, and how fast they've been growing. It's arguable that if you look at, especially in the Ethereum space, we have 62 million wallets right now up from zero just about three years ago. It's one of the fastest adopted technologies in history. About the only thing that you could find that is comparable is the adoption of mobile phones, and this is faster. And if you look at where mobile phones were in the early state days, where this is in the early days, and you take mobile phone growth and project it out, you come up to numbers like a million dollars on Bitcoin in 2030, or $100,000 on Ethereum in 2030. And what we're talking about here is demand. We're talking about going to hundreds of millions, if not billions of wallets that all have some coin in it. They're going to demand coins. They're going to be buying these coins and so that the demand will become insatiable as we move forward. On the supply side, uh, you know, we've got EIP 1559, which is burning minor fees which is keeping the growth, or otherwise known as the inflation rate, it's keeping it down, maybe even deflationary as well, too. So there's a lot of positives that are coming into this space, especially in these layer twos, as you talked about, because yeah. this is also getting into the DeFi, the decentralized finance space, and the future of potentially the financial system, and the, and the new banks, and the new insurance companies, and the new brokers, and the new exchanges, and what they could potentially be doing as well, too. And it's interesting that this is happening with all of these ripping higher, even with all the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt around regulation. The regulatory fear is still there and it's still real, but it's just being overwhelmed by all these other positive stories. If there could ever be any clarity on regulatory uh, risk, then you could really see another leg up on a lot of these coins as well, too. 
Yeah, very well expressed uh, and summed up there. EIP-1559, uh, which you just mentioned, of course, uh, is on the Ethereum network, changing the uh, the way that the um, effectively the some of the way the bid process works uh, in terms of the payment uh, processing uh, and the and the mining fees. Um, I wanted to jump actually, since we were just talking about Yuri and Timmer. Uh, actually, Re uh, Real Vision just did an interview with. Urin, uh, hosted by Rao Pal. Urin, for those who don't know, is the director of global macro at Fidelity. Uh, he talks about actually about the cryptocurrency space that we've just been discussing, but also uh, about some of the macro space. Let's jump in and take a look at that clip right now. We're in an aging, an, an era of aging demographics. Uh, when that happens, people are reaching for yield. They're searching for yield. We're also in a highly indebted economy, and not just the U.S., but around the world. Um, and that has dropped rates to you know extraordinarily low, all-time low levels. So we have the reach for yield. We have the lack of yield in the traditional vehicles, the bond market. And then at the same time, we have this cohort of stocks, at least in the U.S., not so much elsewhere, where you have these large network-driven uh, you know, growth companies generating a ton of free cash flow and returning some of that free cash flow back to investors indirectly via share buybacks. And that's been going on for the last uh, 15 years or so. It really started in 2004. So you have uh, a demographics wave, an age wave, low rates, search for yield, that yield can be found in a certain cohort of stocks. You put them all together and you have a disinflationary era. You know, debt and demographics, I think, are ultimately deflationary. So there you have it. Demographics and aging population, low rates, indebtedness, and the search for yield. Urian sees all of this as a recipe for disinflation. Jim, any thoughts on that real quick so we can jump into audience questions? Yeah, um, I agree with him that the... Demographics, globalization, technology holds down the inflation rate. But I'm worried that we're going to have an inflation rate, say, of 3%, you know, persistently, not transitorily, of around 3%. With 10-year yields at 120, 3% is a problem. If 10-year yields were at 350, 3% is not a problem. Getting yields from 120 to 350 is very painful for the bond market. So I agree with him. We're not going to go to 7, 10, 12 percent. But if we stick around with three with these low yields and the perception is that there are persistently 3 percent inflation, that could be a problem for the bond market. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. Let's jump in, Jim, and hit some of these questions because we've got some really good ones here. Let's do this as a quick speed round because I want to hit as many of these as we can. Uh, first one comes to us from Will from Twitter. Will the Fed taper do a U-turn and add QE if the following months also have lackluster NFPs? Yes, the Fed will attempt to start to taper. They will keep it flexible. They'll tell you that if the data changes, they will change. So at any point when they start tapering, don't think they're monolith or it's on automatic pilot. They learned that lesson from 2018. If the data weakens, they'll spin right around and they'll continue to, to start you know, adding back if they need to. Yeah. Here's one that comes to us uh, from Ringo. This is a good question. Uh, New Orleans and Hurricane Ida effects 
uh, on the Northeast and or oil and energy prices. So oil and energy price impacts, do you see them coming from Hurricane Ida? Not as much as 2005. The oil industry learned quite a bit from that lesson, and they were able to reinforce themselves and basically adjust. There will be some uh, problems with uh, some supply issues, but it won't be anything like we saw in 2005. And you sort of see that in prices, that you haven't had a dramatic move in, in the forward prices, either in gasoline or in crude oil, that would suggest that we're going to have some kind of long-lasting issue. Yeah. Here's one that comes to us from Mike Armbroster. Uh, this is actually the opposite of Will's question in some ways. Hi, Jim. What do you think the Fed does if inflation stays sticky and hot while the job market cools? The Fed is going to tell you that they're going to screen transitory every day until the bond market goes up in yield and forces them to re reassess. So they will always tell you that it's transitory. There's nothing to see here. Move along. If all of a sudden you see 175, 2%, north of 2% on the 10 year yield, then the Fed will be a force to re reassess it. But they're never going to admit that there is an inflation problem because what that means is they have to abandon their idea of trying to get those 5 million people back to work by stimulating as hard as they can. So they're only going to admit inflation when they're forced to, and it's only the bond market that can force them to do it. It's not doing it right now at a 130 or so yield. Yeah, well said. Uh, here's one that comes to us from Andy. Um, the question is, actually, let me switch, sketch one uh, from Ben first. Uh, Ash and Jim, where do you predict precious metals by the end of the year versus cryptocurrencies? The momentum is with crypto, but value may be more with the metals. I should say uh, gold up 1% on the day. It looks like right now, 1,828 per ounce. Look, if you're in a, if you're in a world of looking at alternatives between metals and uh, uh, and cryptos, cryptos are just going to basically outperform. I think they're they're going to continue to go higher. Metal might have the value, but boy, haven't we learned from the last ten years that you know one thing that happens with value stocks is they could stay value stocks for a long time, which is a fancy way of saying they don't do anything as well. So if you're asking where in the alternate world do I put my money? In precious metals or in cryptos, I, I, you know, you're giving me a short time window here of the end of the year. But I think if I was to expand it out a little bit more, I definitely say cryptos would be the place to be. Yeah. Here's the question from Andy: uh, Is Jim Bianco monitoring China's negative credit impulse? Uh, if so, does he think this will drag down the global recovery? China's negative credit impulse. Yes, I have been noticing it. It has turned negative. Uh, their economic data has been nothing short of alarming. It has been slowing down quite a bit. And their response, the government's response, by basically cracking down regulatorily on a lot of their companies. Today, we got a story that they might nationalize Didi. Didi's their big ride-sharing company, which is like five times the size of Uber, and just listed on the New York Stock Exchange on June 30th, and it might be nationalized less than three months later. So there is a real concern that you're seeing a big slowdown in China right now, and the government cracking down on all of their companies and punishing all of their creative entrepreneurs is definitely not helping. If I write that a little bit bigger, there's been a slowing largely in Asia bigger as well, too, especially because of COVID. Toyota has, re has reduced production by 40% because of the spike in COVID, which might be Olympics-related as well, too. Yeah, I'm not a deep thinker on China, but it sure looks like somebody over at Didi got crosswise with the party. 
Right. And that's that's unfortunate because if China wants to keep doing that, say, here's a bright here's a bright set of entrepreneurs that did something innovative. And now that they've actually created some value, we'll take it away from them. They're going to run out of bright, innovative people real fast. And there's going to be much, much less innovation in China. Hooray for the U.S., I guess, because guess where they're going to go? They'll probably go to California and do it as opposed to doing it in China. Yeah. Uh, this one from Achilles. Jim, first of all, big fan. Appreciate all of your work. Is there a possibility that we never taper and go BOJ route, Bank of Japan, uh, with QE infinity? Yeah. Uh, haven't we had that already? We started QE in 2009, and here we are, 2021, tw more than 12 years later. And we're talking about potentially the fourth time that they're going to attempt some kind of taper. The first one was back in September of 2009 uh, as well, too. So aren't we there already? And yes, if inflation is transitory and inflation is a non-issue, why would you need to stop? There's no reason. The only reason the Fed needs to taper is a fear that it will create an imbalance causing inflation. But if inflation is transitory, like they say it is, there's no reason to stop it. And yeah, we can go Japan then at that point in terms of monetary policy. All right. I got to end on a high note here. We're going into a long weekend. We got to add something optimistic looking to the future. Uh, this one comes to us from William. Final question. I know we only have a few seconds left, but Jim, the question is, what do you think of Web 3.0? For people who maybe have not heard you yet uh, on Real Vision Crypto talking about this, tell us a little bit about your views of the opportunities you see right now uh, in the DeFi space. Web, Web 3.0, let's define what that is. That is the, basically the entire internet is run on the blockchain. Uh, that allows you to have a person, I'm going to summarize this real quickly. It allows you to have an, uh, a non-hackable address or um, uh, way to identify yourself. On Web 3.0, when I register this phone, it's me. I don't need passwords anymore. If I go to a big bank account and I come in with my public key and it sees that it's come from me, it knows it's me, like they recognize my face when I walk through the front door and they say, oh, you have an account with us. Here you go. You can see all your information. Go on on Web 3.0 or every one of these interminable, terrible passwords that we always have to update and change and use a letter and a number and a symbol and a capital and all that stuff goes away. Uh, hooray for that. But what makes that work is something akin to what we've seen in the crypto space is some kind of a, a blockchain registered identity on some kind of a wallet. The crypto coins uh, in the Web 3.0 world happen to be the way that we create incentives in that world as well, too. So when Joe Biden goes out and says, I want to meet with all of the tech guys and, they, and they're going to double down on security to prevent hacking and ransomware, hey, the answer is Web 3.0. It's always been there. I, I know that they don't want it because it reduces their influence. It, re, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles uh, and the Twitters of the world. That if you go to some purely decentralized Web 3.0 version of them, they're not in charge like they are currently as a platform. So it is a potentially huge place, and it is potentially a big deal. There's so much more to it uh, as well, but I'm just kind of scratching the surface of what 3.0 is. Jim, I'm very impressed. Best damn 90-second summary of Web 3.0 I think I've ever heard. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
Yeah, and thanks for watching, everyone. Thanks for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And just a reminder, markets are closed on Monday in observance of Labor Day. So enjoy the long weekend, and we'll catch you here on Tuesday, same time, 4 p.m. Eastern, uh, with Jared Dillian. In the meantime, we will see you on the exchange, Real Vision's social network. Thanks for watching, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.